Life is hard. Uh, sometimes it feels like a battle. Uh, maybe like a fight every day. And I suggest that if I say that, there are many of you who in your own way can relate to that. Is that true? Yeah. And if we ask why, the answer we get depends on where we look. The answer which the New Testament gives to that question is because that's what the devil wants. The devil wants life to feel like a battle that is plain and simple destructive, that makes you want to give up. Not everyone is ready to say, well, I believe in the, the devil as a, as a real thing. It seems to many like a, a made-up boogeyman to control others, and if you're there, fine. Let's use a different name for you. There are powers in the world which incline people in the wrong way, and we can see it. And because of that, life is like a battle. This morning, what I want to show you, and I only want to show it to you for your own good and for the good that you become in the world when you see it. Those are the two things I, I'm, I'm on about, that you should be alive, truly. And if there's even a part of you that thinks, I've not yet got life to the degree that I want to, then, then here, listen up. This is for you. And because when you come to life on the road that God wants you to be on, then you become his agent of good in the world. I have in the week behind me a much deeper understanding of how desperately the world needs good. And to that end, this morning, we'll consider the, one of the chief ways that the Bible depicts the strategy of the devil in, in, in steering you away from everything which is good toward everything which is bad, and it's a bit unexpected. It's comfort. That he will use comfort as a means of steering you in the wrong way. These are the words of Jesus. Listen. And this is Matthew 6, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. When Jesus first said these words. He was before a large crowd of followers of his who were working at finding their way to true life. And Jesus said these words because what he wanted more than anything is for each and every one of them to discover the path of life. That's what he meant more than anything. And, and so he drew upon a metaphor which was very common in his own day, the metaphor of the road or the way or the path for life. Life is a journey. That resonates with you, doesn't it? It has for generations because we know what it's like to move one step at a time from where we are right now on into the future. We know what it's like to look back down the road and have some regrets and to try to carry them as best as we can, even though it hurts us, into the present. And we also know what it's like to be cowering in fear and uncertain because of what we imagine down the way. But the truth about every one of us is here we are at this point, and a good way to think about this point is, is a road. And Jesus knew it, as many other teachers did in his day. And so he taught on that, uh, in that moment before all of those people uh, in hopes of showing them the way to true life. And he drew upon this metaphor and he said, despite contrary opinion uh, to, to, to the opposite, there are really only two ways, just two roads. And they're principally distinguished by where they end up. Did you see it when I read the words? One of them ends in life, and the other ends in destruction. 
Now, aside from being different from one another in their destinations, Jesus also names three distinguishing features between these two. The barrier to entry, how many other people are on the road, and what it's like to go walking down one as opposed to the other. And here I want you to use your imagination and your attention. On the one hand, there is a road which has a gate, an entry, which is wide. That means it takes almost nothing to get on that way. And once you find yourself on it, you'll discover that just about everyone else is also there. If you wonder where it is, just look for the crowds. That's one way. And if you were to be on it with everyone else, what you would find is that the traveling is easy. All of the difficulties, all of the challenges have been smoothed out, so it doesn't take an awful lot of effort. In fact, you can just cruise along on this road. That is one road. And, and, and then contrast the other. The other road, the, the second one which Jesus describes, this one has a high barrier to entry. The gate that you must pass through to get on it is narrow. It's, it's difficult to find and get on it. Once you're walking on it, you will discover that, that you have departed from the crowd, that the stream which is going this way is not the way you're going. In fact, there's just a few. And with each step, that you walk on this road, you discover that it's harder than the last one. It's not easy. It's a challenge. It's hard work. One road is easy, wide, and there are many people on it. The other road is, is narrow and difficult. It's hard to get onto it, and there's just a few. And now you must notice, this is very critical, that second path, the narrow, the hard one, the one that's hard to get onto, look at what Jesus says again. That road, the road is hard that leads to life. And pause here for a moment and consider what it would mean for you if the challenges that you encounter because you're trying to do what's right, if those are in fact a part of what you should expect. Take that in. That, take that in. What if every time you try to do the right thing and it's difficult, that's not because there's something wrong with you, but that's because what that road is always like, it's hard. And then on the other hand, look, if you say, no, I don't want it hard, I want it easy. And by the way, I don't believe anyone really wants that. I don't. I believe you know deep down inside that you were made for the challenge of real life with the adventure and the benefits that come when you grow up and you stop making your chief end comfort. But until you do, then look at the second thing. That road, okay, notice the road is easy. That leads to destruction. And here we see the distinction that I'm going to suggest that this morning we should pay attention to. Because what it tells us is that while Jesus wants you on the road of life, the devil, or whatever name you need to use, wants you on the other road, wants you to take the road that doesn't lead toward life, but rather leads toward destruction, wants to keep you from everything good for you and to make sure you don't become good for the world around you. And in some measure, he has the upper hand because the road that works for him is a lot easier than the other road. Do you see it? It means that one of the first instruments that the devil will use to get his way is comfort. Clearly, you must note this. The devil is going to use the difference in relative challenge of these two roads to his advantage when it comes to separating you from God. He will try to divert you from God's way by using the appeal of comfort. Is there anyone in here who doesn't like being comfortable? Do you love comfort? 
Anyone else in here who loves their couch at the end of the day? Oh, how many cushy blankets do you have? I guarantee you don't have as many as I have. The New Testament's first narrative depiction of the devil. And if, if it's a trouble, use a different word. The spiritual powers of this present darkness. The force of evil which is behind so many of the things that are ruining our life, that, that rob us of joy and, 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 and spread in just a, a lack of justice in the world. They rob people of the dignity that they should have as God's own creatures. The, this power and force, the first time we encounter him in the New Testament, uh, is recounted in the fourth chapter of Matthew. Listen now. Immediately after Jesus is baptized, but before he goes out and does anything else, Matthew recounts the following events. This is Matthew 4, verse 1. Then, that's again, after Jesus was baptized. Then, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Before doing any of the things that he became famous for, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, listen now, to seek God in the solitude. That is, Jesus had enough sense to know the first thing is for me to hear from the one who's going to lay out before me the road that he means for me to follow. And whatever you believe about God, I'm telling you this, God knows that there is a right road for you that he made you for. And he will set it out before you. And the first thing is for you to listen to it. And that's what Jesus was doing there, to listen to God, to find the way. And then there in that silence seeking God's way, Jesus found himself confronted by, in, in, in the text here, the devil. You see it? The devil. Who is this devil who encounters Jesus in the wilderness? In Greek, the word is diablos. And to our ears in English, when we hear the devil, it sounds like a personal name, like a, 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 someone's name. It's not like that in Greek. Instead, it's a noun that is derived from a verb which describes an action. And in Greek, what they did is they looked at the action described by that word, which is diablain, and they said, ah, that kind of action, let's lift that, we'll turn it into a noun, and that will describe this figure who acts in that way, the devil. We do the same thing in English when we take a verb and turn it into a noun that describes a person based on what they do. Are you with me? The painter, we say, because that person paints. The accountant, the lawyer. Now, I'm not trying to sort of picture more and more nefarious jobs. No disrespect, lawyers. But you see what I mean? That's what it is with this word, the devil. And what does the verb mean, diablain, from which this noun comes? There are three principal meanings that tell us why this word, the devil, is used for this figure. The first is the word diablain means the accuser. And not in the sense, listen, of a judicial setting where someone's done something wrong and there is real evidence against them and an accusation is made. That's not actually what it would have evoked in the ancient mind, but rather the accuser in the sense of the one who speaks in the ear something which is specified to discourage or blame or slander or, 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 or bring all of the courage here and, and evacuate it and fill it with stead, instead with, with uh, anxiety and, and self-doubt. The accuser is this, ready? You made a mistake, again, because you will never get it right. You failed at that thing you tried to do because you are a failure, that's why. Oh, remember that thing you did back there? 
you shouldn't forget it. That's you. You are that person. The devil is the accuser. That's the first thing. That's what diable means, to accuse. The second way this verb functions is to denote the simple act of deception, to present false information to achieve an unjust outcome, intentionally misleading or misrepresenting. The devil is the deceiver. He is the one who lies. And the way he lies is by making you believe things about those those impediments out there, those failures back there, which are not, strictly speaking, true. And he does it for a reason. The devil is a liar. That's the second way Diablaine works. Third, which is right down at its roots. If you pull the word apart in Greek, you'll find at the foundation, the word means to split apart, to separate, to divide, to put distance between two things which should, should be close together. And the devil is the one whose main goal is to split apart people from each other, friends from one another, people who love each other from one another, people who work together, put some distance there between them. Most importantly, to make sure that you're as far away as he can get you from God, the one who loves you and is benevolent and merciful toward you. And here we'll see, to get you away from the road that God is calling you on so that he can keep you on the one that leads to the ends that he has for you. And again, do you remember the difference between the two roads? The one that he's going to lead you toward is a lot easier than the one that God's inviting you to take. And, and, and hear me out now, it's only easier for now. Because the road that the devil is leading you on is a dead end. And the difficulties that God has for you are the best things for you that you could possibly imagine. And the way the devil works, we're going to see it in what happens next in the desert with Jesus, is by tempting Jesus to comfort. We might think if someone's going to tell us that the devil is a real uh, spiritual being and is effective at tempting people, we might think, oh, it must be when someone does something sensationally awful, which we're all very ready to say how evil and wicked, that's the work of the devil. But what I want to show you, and, and I'm going to show you this so you're equipped for the right road, is that first of all, it's not like that at all. But instead, the devil will use comfort to keep you off the right road because the road to life is a lot harder than the road, uh, than the road to destruction. And what, what, the, the, what the devil will do is carefully offer reasonable departures from the hard road that God is setting before you. And, and we see that because what happens here in the desert is the devil comes to Jesus and three times offers him very reasonable departures from the road that God is calling him on. And he uses comfort to get there. Let me show you what I mean specifically. Now, Jesus has been in the desert fasting for 40 days. That means he's not been consuming food. Has anyone in here ever fasted? Yes or no? Is it easy? No. This guy can't, after breakfast, I can fast till about 12.30 or 1 o'clock. <laughs> so, so Satan comes to Jesus to say this. If you are, this is verse three, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now the truth about Jesus is that he is the son of God. And the truth about Jesus is the reason he's depriving himself from food is he knows that the best way for him to have crystal clear focus and attention on what God is leading him toward is to remove every distraction, including the distraction of satisfying his physical appetites. And so that's where the devil strikes first, with an innocent suggestion for fresh bread. Do you know the smell of freshly baked bread? 
Isn't it magnificent? Does it make you feel comfortable even imagining it right now? And imagine if you were the one who created the universe so that you could really bake a good loaf of bread. And add to it that nobody's going to know because it's just Jesus there with the presence of, of the Spirit and the Father there. But what Jesus says is no. The road you're asking me to take is certainly much easier and I could take it. But the road that God's inviting me on is the hard road of listening to him. And I want to make you a promise right now, two promises. God has something to say to you. And in order for you to hear it, it will be difficult. And so Satan's going to try to make sure you don't hear it by, by inviting you to be more comfortable than you are. That doesn't work, so there's a second temptation. It's recorded down in verse 6. What happens is the devil takes Jesus from there up to the pinnacle of the temple, right in the city of Jerusalem. There in Jerusalem is the place where Jesus will have the highest level of visibility to the religious leadership. And of course, the mission that Jesus has is to do his best to, to help people see who he is so they will follow God. And so the, the, the devil brings him up to the top with all of those people down there, and look at what he says. This is verse 6. If you are the son of God, again, the same conditional statement, and of course he is. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. If Jesus throws himself off the, the pinnacle of the temple, everyone will see it. And then he says this. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Does anyone know where those words come from? They come from the Bible. I told you if you were here last week that one thing about the devil is he's sneaky. He's clever. He's wise. He doesn't say, hey, I have this new thing I wrote over here and there's a beast on the front with this. Read this. No, he's, he, he gives Jesus words which come from the Bible, which are true words, which are a promise from God that if his anointed, the Messiah, this comes from Psalms, would ever be in the position of being harmed, God would come and rescue him. And, and here, the temptation is very, very clear, especially if you know where Jesus' story ends. What Jesus wants is for as many people who are a part of God's people to know the truth about him. And here's an opportunity from the devil to get that accomplished all at once, just like that. Go up there, jump off, God will save you, and then everyone will be completely convinced. But what Jesus knows is that the road he's going to walk in order, and listen now, in order for the faith that he evokes in people to be genuine faith. In order to be true trust, he will not go on a path where he makes it so obvious that everyone will have to choose. That would be too easy. Do you see it? But instead, he's going to go on the much more difficult path of going into that city, not in this spectacular display that is so obvious, but rather as the teacher who is going to require true trust and who will be rejected by many of those people whom he could have convinced if he had just done what the devil suggested. But that's not the path that God had called him on. That's too comfortable, too easy. The path for Jesus involves the difficulty of being rejected by those whom he loves. Do you see that second pattern? It's going to be the same for us. Well, when that doesn't work, there's a third attempt of the devil. He takes Jesus from the temple, which is high up, to a higher place to a mountain peak, which overlooks all of the kingdoms of the earth. And what he says to Jesus there, this is verse 9, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. That is a promise with a condition. And the promise is, I will give you authority that is undeniable over everything you see 
in this world around. To us, that might seem extremely strange and presumptuous that in this moment, this power of evil and disobedience should make that kind of promise. But if we were to read carefully in the New Testament, we would see that it actually says that this power and this principality, this ruler and authority of the air of this present darkness is in fact rightly called the God of this world at that point, lowercase g. So that if we said, why is the world such a mess? The answer the scriptures would give is that right now it's under bondage to this wicked one whose road, listen, will eventually end in a dead end. But for now is a wide road that God has invited many people on. And and even though it's hard for us to grasp, is a road which God himself has allowed for this time for this one to walk down. And so he can, in fact, promise Jesus this authority in this moment. But what you will know if you read to the end of the New Testament is that there is a different path that Jesus will have to walk down in order to truly accept the authority over all of the kingdoms of the earth. And that is the path which has along its way, rather than a throne of gold upon which Jesus will sit with a crown of gold and jewels, a cross on a hill with a crown of thorns, crucified between two criminals, and everyone who sees him will think he also is a bandit like they are. And so Jesus says no to this shortcut to authority. And the reason he says no is because that road's too comfortable and easy. The road to life, and by the way, the road which enabled him to do for all of us here what was required so we ourselves could also accept his invitation onto the road of life was a lot harder. And he went that way because that's how it is. Now this method of the devil with Jesus to consistently tempt him off God's right road with comfort is the same way he behaves now. It's the same strategy he will employ with you and with me and with us all together to keep us from doing what God wants us to do, to keep us from experiencing the life that God has made us for, to keep us from being the power for good in the world that God has in mind when he looks at Renaissance Church. And I can tell you from experience and from the scriptures that the way of true life is a hard way. The good way that God is leading us on is harder than the easy way. Do some of you have an inclination that this is actually how it works? Do you? Let me, be, let me start as plain as I can. Do some of you know how much harder it is to be a good friend to someone rather than a shallow friend? I mean, I want you to think about this for a minute. How much harder is it to say that thing to your friend which your friend needs to hear, and which you should say because you trust Jesus, the word that they need to be delivered to them, how much easier it is to keep your mouth quiet so that they don't feel upset or, or they don't uh, dislike you. You know which is easier, don't you? Isn't it so much easier to be liked? The devil wants you to prioritize the comfort of being liked so that you never become a very effective friend. Uh, let's, let's try something else. Uh, parents, do you ever find that when you're a good parents, your children hate you the most? Is it comfortable or uncomfortable to be despised by those ones who you love? It may seem like too small a thing. It's not. This is how the deceiver works. By saying in your ear, make it easier. It will be easier for them and for you. And then before long, you are so far away from where God wants you. Do you know that every risk that is worth taking 
so that at the end of that risk, there's something good for you or for someone else in the world. will only ever be embraced and pushed through if you're willing to say no to comfort. Do you know that? And I want you to think about that for you personally, but for us as a church altogether. Imagine this. I'm going to show you exactly what it looks like when the devil tempts someone with comfort, okay? Imagine you here in this gathering. You hear about Jesus inviting people to put others first. You hear Jesus teaching through the words that I've, I've read here over the last year or two about the fact that God cares about those who are oppressed and defenseless who can't help themselves. And there's a part of you that thinks out in the world of the way that the brokenness in the world in some measure comes because they can't defend themselves. And there's a part of your heart that thinks I should go and make a difference. And then there's a little bit of a dream in your mind. And you see down the road a day when that oppression is freed, when that helplessness is helped, when those people who can't defend themselves are defended and you can envision it and you think that's what we should do. Has that ever happened for anyone? That's God's invitation for you to get on the road. It's a hard road. It's a difficult path. In order to get there, you're going to have to learn some things which you don't know yet. You're going to have to develop some skills which you've never had before. You're going to have to make some false starts, fail, and get over the fact that some people are going to say, ah, you shouldn't have done it. You're going to need to be brave and courageous. And you know who knows that? The devil knows it. And so he's going to say to you, you know, you don't have a lot of spare time. It's hard to learn those skills after all. Never mind that you waste time. He's going to say, you know what? Why don't you just do a Google search before you make that phone call? See if anybody else has done that. And then you're looking at a video of someone else doing it online so you don't feel like it needs to be done as much. And then the next thing you know, you're clicking on a link between an otter and a bear fighting, and you're watching it. <laughs> and then you turn away from that, from the desk where you're at work, and your couch says, come over here. And the blankets, and the devil wins with your couch and your remote control, and with the speed of the internet. And the victory is to keep you from doing the great thing which God has invited you to do, which the world needs you to do, which is what it is to be a follower of Christ's, to say, I'm blessed, and I'm going to fight through my feelings of not wanting the world to be like this to the point where I'm doing something about it with others, and I'm going to invite them together. God will do this for our church all together, I promise. Let me tell you, this is fresh in my mind because I've just come from a place where people are extremely poor. And I, I'm in a place where people are unbelievably wealthy. And the truth is, if, if the people who identified themselves as Christians and significantly involved in Christian faith gave 10% of what they earned to the church and to other missions, there would be trillions of dollars at the disposal of people who, because they say they're followers of Christ, would do magnificent things with that money, but instead, on average, Christians in the United States give less than 2% of what they have away either to churches or other places. And, the, and this is a victory of the devil. And he does not win, listen now, by making you say, no, it's all mine. I deserve it. And I'm a greedy, pathological consumer of everything good for me. <laughs> no, he, he does it like this. You ready? And he'll do it right now. You'll say, you know what? It's time for me to start giving. And I'm going to tell you, it is. And maybe I will. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I'll set aside 10% of what I have, give that to the church. I'll set another 10% aside. I'll give it to the other organizations that I believe in, and we can live on 80%. I'm going to do it. And then the next thing that's going to occur to you is once we're in a place where we're just a little bit more secure than we are now, we're going to do it. And then there's a line that's drawn on the road up ahead of you. You think you're drawing it. The devil's like, no, no, here, put it here. And, and it's, it's too... It's too uncomfortable right now to be generous like that. How could we make it? It's too threatening. 
to do that. My goodness, I would love to grab all of you and bring you to Guatemala. I wish I could. To see, get this, the inverse relationship between abundance and joy. That you think if only you had more, you'd be more joyful. And I was with people who have almost nothing and they are filled with joy and ease and peace nonetheless. And to see the power that could be behind what resources would be ours if every one of us said, look, I'm going to live on 80% and I'm going to, my goodness, it would blow your mind. But the devil is so clever. Right now even, yes, oh, I want to be on that road once I get there. And the moment you get there, by the time you get there, the line will be moved forward just enough so it's a little further up. And comfort will keep you from being generous. And I'm gonna tell you, you can do this not just with comfort or with friendships or with parenting or with the vision that God gives you to make a difference in the world, with just about, actually not just about, with every good thing that God is gonna set before you, the deceiver, the tempter will be right there trying to derail you from that good thing. And he'll use whatever comfort he can muster to keep you away from it. We are pathologically comfortable. We are. And the world needs us to be less comfortable. We need to be settled free from our ease because in the world around us, there's genuine discomfort because of inequality, because of a lack of justice, because of oppression, because of, 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 of patterns of, of evil and wickedness that have made this world so desperately topsy-turvy. And the, the invitation from Jesus is come on the road of life so that I use you, so that you have true life, and so that the world is blessed in the way it is. And before you start to walk, trust me, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. And what I want you to understand, not from my authority, but from the authority of the one who made you and loved you and walked the very hard road to save you by giving his life on the cross and then conquering death so that you yourself could be alive, what I want to tell you from him is that you should say enough of the easy path and get on the challenging path of being a genuine disciple instead, and then you will have true life and you will bring true life to the world around you. Look at the way that Jesus put it in Luke chapter 9. This is the antidote to the temptation of comfort right from the mouth of the one who resisted temptation for you and for me. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The path of life is the path on which you say no to every impulse in you to prioritize your comfort over what is right. It is the path in which you are ready to carry yourself a burden which is captured by the image of the cross, which is an image, if nothing else, of supreme discomfort. And then the invitation is to be on a road, and this is critical, on a road on which you can be absolutely certain and confident that no matter how few people you see around you, there is definitely one who is right there beside you. And it's the one who has, in fact, already carried the cross for you, and it's Jesus. And so here it is, ready? Even if there's a teeny bit of inspiration in your heart, would you right now say in your heart, God, I want to be on the path of life. I'm ready to say deep down inside, you made me for this. And I'm ready to abandon the foolish and immature attempt to prioritize my comfort over everything else and be on the adventure of true life wherever you lead so that I'm a brave woman, so that I'm a confident man, 
So that I'm a person who looks at all of this strength and all of the resistance and says, thank goodness it's not on me alone, but rather on my Savior, who's stronger than any wickedness that come up against me. And I will walk with him and he will carry me through every challenge and then, then it will be life forevermore. This church, this whole church was made for this adventure together. Let's be a church that says no to comfort and yes to God's invitation to walk on the path of life. Agreed? Agreed. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you so much for the brilliant teaching of our Lord and Savior and friend, Jesus. We thank you for the simplicity of the truth that there are two roads, one to life and the other to destruction. God, we thank you for this lesson which teaches us to be on our lookout for invitations which will use comfort to tempt us off the right road onto the wrong one. God, would you take every resolve in us now to be people who are brave rather than cowardly and turn those inclinations into true steps, true steps on the path of life. And would you assure us deep down that if we will take even one step, you are there right beside us to carry the cross, to be within us as the power of the Spirit, the treasure that is with everyone who seeks to know and follow you. And then would you use us for good in this world, which for now, uh, for now suffers under this present darkness. And would you make us, through your grace and glory, into this present light. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.